In our first scripture reading, you see clearly in John's first letter how he talks about the active work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. From 1 John chapter 4, we read verses 12 through 16. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. Our second reading comes from John's Gospel. Here we read from chapter 14, verses 12 through 17. This entire section is the words of Jesus, speaking about His work, how He accomplished the Father's will, but also how He would send the Holy Spirit to the early church. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Dear friends in Christ, for the portion of God's holy and inspired word that we consider today on Trinity Sunday, we read from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 48, verses 16 through 22. Come close to me and hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it first existed, I was there. And now God the Lord has sent me with his spirit. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you how to succeed, who leads you in the way you should walk. If only you would have listened carefully to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like sand and the children from your body like grains of sand. Their name would never have been cut off or destroyed from my presence. Get out of Babylon, Flee from Chaldea. With a joyful voice, declare and announce this. Send it out to the earth of the, to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not suffer thirst in the desolate places through which he led them. He made water flow for them from a rock. He split open a rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. This is God's word before us today. May the Holy Spirit bless us as we consider how a unique God means a unique people. 
And we look at three elements of that in God's reminder, God's redemption, and God's reassurance. This past week at school here at Redemption, the older kids and I went through a brief study on symbols in the church. There are many different symbols in the church that are used to picture and portray many different elements of our faith and sometimes different individuals in our faith. One of the most common elements that is depicted through Christian symbols is the Trinity. God's Trinitarian nature is so mysterious, so complex, so far beyond our comprehension that we seek for ways to teach it and understand it in an easier way. Symbolism can help this. It can help us take something very complex and and distill it down into something simple and something visual as well. But no symbol can fully rationalize or explain something that God asks us to believe by faith. And that is what the Trinity is. Even though many symbols are very simple outwardly, they, can, they have a way of portraying very vast and complex truths. And we certainly see this with the Trinity. Take, for example, some of the symbols used in the early church for the Trinity. The simplest symbol was the equilateral triangle. The equilateral triangle has three equal sides and inside three equal angles. And so this symbol was used in a very basic way to portray that the three persons of the Trinity are all equal, as we confessed, and all do equal work, but in different ways. Another famous symbol for the Trinity is called the Borromean rings. And it's composed of three equal rings that are interconnected with one another. Here again, we see this symbol that is portrayed of the Trinity Three equal persons, but connected in their work to become one. Another ancient symbol is called the triquetra, which is an ancient Celtic symbol for the Trinity. And this consists of three interlocking curves. You might see these curves as part of the circles of the Borromean rings. The inside parts are interconnected, but then there is one singular circle in the middle. There again, you have depicted, despite the different characteristics of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you see them working in unity as one God. Even something as simple as a three-leaf clover has been used by earlier Christians as a basic symbol for the Trinity. The green plant-like nature of the clover indicates life that we have through God, but then also the leaves of the clover are equal in their representation. Even something as simple as an apple has been used to describe the Trinity. An apple has three distinct parts, the peel, the flesh or the fruit, and the core. But none of us would say, well, it's three different apples. It's one apple with three parts. So people have used that as a simple illustration, usually to little children, to talk about who God is and how the Bible describes God's nature. Not three gods, but one God. 
The symbol on the left is a little bit more complex, but gets to what we were confessing in the Athanasian Creed, where we make a deliberate attempt to say, this is what God says he is, but this is also what God is not. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Father. More modern depictions of the Trinity may look like this, where you see the three interlocked rings, but you also see distinct symbols that display the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is seen as the hand reaching down from heaven, providing in his goodwill. The Son is seen through the crown of thorns as act of redemption, and the Holy Spirit as the dove. Even something as simple as our altar cloths today on Trinity Sunday illustrate some symbolism of the Trinity. You see here the three circles represented with the triangle and inside the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the Alpha and the Omega, depicting God's eternal nature as the true and only God. Many other symbols could come to mind for the Trinity. There are probably hundreds of them out there. But you can see that many of them, even when depicted differently, all try to display the same truths about God. They try to get to the root of what God has revealed about himself to us. The Trinity is certainly a difficult concept to understand. But its complexity also shows us the uniqueness of God. The triune God is unlike any other God. That is certainly true by definition. No other God in any other religion goes by the name three in one or claims any such nature. But it's also true that the true triune God is unique in his action and his work as well. Triune God in the Old Testament is often referred to as Jehovah. In our English translations, you'll see in our sermon text printed in your bulletin, in our English translations that comes out with the word Lord in all capitals. Really what that is in the Hebrew text is the name of God, sometimes referred to as Jehovah, sometimes referred to as Yahweh. As we see what God tells us about himself in the Old Testament here, talking about his triune nature, we see what makes him unique, what sets him apart. And now as followers of God, as those who believe and confess the true God, this also makes us unique. Our text begins with a reminder, specifically a reminder of the importance of following God's word. Verse 18 tells us, if only you would have listened carefully to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. This context of Isaiah was written near the end of Israel's history as they were coming out of the Babylonian captivity. And God reminds them, if only you would have listened to my word, you would have saved yourself a lot of pain and heartache. This was the ancient and perpetual call to God's people in the Old Testament. From the very beginning, God's reminder to them was, listen, heed my word. Do not stray from the truth. Verse 21 reminded the people of Israel of their history as well. It says, they did not suffer thirst in the desolate places through which he led them. He made water flow from them from a rock. He split open a rock and water gushed out. What's being talked about here is the exodus from Egypt. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. God provided for them. Isaiah is reminding the people of that. 
And these people here that Isaiah would have been preaching to would have been many hundreds of years removed from the generation that went through the Exodus. But yet it remained in the people's mind. It remained in their memory because it was a monumental point for them. And Isaiah is telling them, this is the God that you have. This is the God that you can rely on. He reminds you of that. From the very beginning of their history as a people, the children of Israel lived through moments where they could either heed God's word and obey or turn away from God's word in disobedience. And when you put it like that, it's really simple, isn't it? You've got a choice. You've got two options. You can listen to what God says or you don't have to. And time and time again in Israel's history, they had that opportunity. They were faced at that crossroads. And sadly, more often than not, they chose to disobey. God reminded them, even at this point, to listen. To listen because that word was important, but also to listen and remember His faithfulness. He led them through the wilderness. He provided for their needs. He protected them. He displayed His power and His presence. You see, this reminder for the children of Israel was not just a reminder of themselves, of their history, but it was a reminder of who God was. We don't see that so much in our text directly, but the context of Isaiah here is filled with depictions of God's nature. God's reminding his people who he is, and through that, what he is capable of. Take verses 12 and 13 in Isaiah 48 here, just a few verses before as an example. God says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. My hands laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. The true God, the triune God, Jehovah, made it a point to remind his people of who he was and what he had accomplished. And as we think about applying this to our lives, because we could take the same lesson for ourselves, we've had many crossroads in our lives, as the children of Israel had, where we can listen to God or not. And as we remind ourselves of this for our lives, we remember there's an application of both law and gospel here. When God tells us about his great power and glory, we should consider the fact that we will stand in front of him one day and give an account for our actions. We will stand in front of him and he will ask us what we believe. Our confession will come out. You can't deny it at that point. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, even if they rejected it during their lives. And God demands holiness from us. So we recognize when we see these depictions of God, he's the creator of the world. He's almighty. All things are held in his hand. His power is present in our lives. We remember God is powerful. And God is a judge who demands justice and holiness. But there's also an application of the gospel as well. When we see all these descriptions of who God is and what he's able to accomplish for us, we realize that his number one goal for us is to be in eternity in heaven with him. And he shows that quite clearly in his love for us by sending his own son in our place. That is to be our trust and our confidence. The second uniqueness of God that comes out is a little bit more of a direct reminder, but it's worth highlighting in and of itself. God wanted his people to know that he was their redeemer. 
verse 17 states, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you how to succeed, who leads you in the way you should walk. The fact that the Lord is our Redeemer certainly reminds us of the work of our Savior Jesus. We know that that title comes up in the New Testament as referring to Jesus, our Savior. But there's somewhat of some confusion here as these verses come out of who exactly is speaking here. Is it God who's speaking directly? Or is it Isaiah who's speaking as the prophet? Or if you extend the context a little bit further here from Isaiah 40 through 48, the Lord talks a lot about Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus was the individual who was in control of the people of Israel in their captivity at the moment, but God would also use Cyrus to let the people go. Cyrus actually provided a way, even the funding, for the children of Israel to return back to Israel and rebuild their cities and the temple. And God used him for that purpose. So in that sense, maybe he's the Redeemer. But certainly we also think of Jesus the ultimate redeemer. Because God's purpose and God's mission was not just to let the children of Israel come back home to Jerusalem, but to redeem them from sin. Here you get a taste of one of the difficulties of studying biblical prophecy sometimes because these thoughts are interwoven with one another. Yes, God is speaking. Yes, Isaiah is the messenger. He's speaking through his prophet. Yes, Cyrus was the one that God would use to deliver the people. And yes... Jesus is their ultimate Savior. All these thoughts are contained in this one section and could apply in that sense to this concept of Redeemer. But ultimately, no matter how many different individuals may fit, we know what makes Jesus the most important Redeemer for us. And it's here that we see in this act of redemption that we hold on to so tightly for the confidence of our faith, we see the work of the triune God. In verse 16, we see the work of the Holy Spirit referenced. Where God says, And now the Lord has sent me with His Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in this work of the Redeemer coming to deliver God's people. When it comes to the redemption from sin, Jesus was the active one. Jesus was the one who took our sins in his own body. He came in our flesh. He carried our burdens. He fulfilled our righteousness. But we also see that God is describing that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were present in this work as well. Therefore, when we think about God's Trinitarian nature on a Sunday like today, Trinity Sunday, or we confess something historic like the Athanasian Creed, we're not just saying theological facts. We're not just saying old words that our forefathers used. What we're doing is confessing and appreciating the active work of the triune God in our lives. Yes, we confess things that happened in the past that were historic, that God led the children of Israel forth, that God described himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. All things that from our vantage point happened in the past. But our confession today is present-focused as well. That God is still active in the same way, fulfilling the same promises, using the very same power in our lives as well. The final uniqueness of God that we see is the reassurance that He offers. 
We often wonder in our lives, what will the future hold? We think about that a lot today. We, we talk about it a lot lately with so much unrest in the world around us. The rising prices of goods, the result of inflation in our country, the uncertainty of global conflicts in the world today. There's no shortage of things that cause us to wonder about what the future is going to be like. I've talked to people that are so worried about the future that they don't want to have children because they don't want to bring somebody into the world that's this horrible and that this is headed down for so much destruction. We often wonder about the future and it's easy in that way to become fearful and cynical. The literal definition for cynicism is to become distrusting or despairing about the motives of others. And we have to ask ourselves, do we do that with God? Do we become cynical of God and how he describes himself to us? It's one thing to come here to church on Sunday and confess the Athanasian Creed and to re rejoice in the Trinity and to sing glory be to God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But in our lives, do we become fearful, worrisome, and, and cynical about what God promises to do for us? It's easy to slip into despair because we know our own failures too. We know them all too well. We even confess often in our worship services, I believe that I am by nature sinful and unclean and that I cannot free myself from my sinful condition. And because of this, I deserve God's punishment both now and in eternity. To the modern ear, when they hear those words, they cringe. What good does it do a person to think such things about themselves that you deserve eternal punishment? You may not be perfect. You may not be God, but do you really deserve that? That you're lost and condemned? But we know this about our natures. We know our limitations. We know our failures. We know death comes for all. It doesn't get more cynical than that kind of sentiment. There is no hope or redeeming value in those kinds of thoughts. If that's all we were left with, that I am a lost and condemned person and that I deserve eternal punishment, we should have reason to despair in our lives. And God leads his prophet Isaiah to conclude with the very same thought in our text in different words. Isaiah says, there is no peace for the wicked. We know this to be true. We know it to be true of our lives. But we also know it's not the whole story. You see, a harsh dose of reality and truth sometimes is not always a bad thing if there's something to reassure you on the other side. In his reminder to Israel, God reassures them again, connecting them to his past work in their history. He says, your descendants would have been like the sand and the children from the body like grains of sand. Their name would never have been cut off or destroyed from my presence. God is reminding the children of Israel about his covenant with Abraham when he established that at the beginning, at the genesis of their nation. He told Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Your children will number the stars and the sands of the seashore. And this was not just about Israel, as we know 
from the New Testament, it was referring to the church. It was referring to all believers, the kingdom of God. God's reminder to the people was to reassure them. And yes, he needed to lead them through some difficult and harsh truths that you didn't follow me. You brought captivity on yourselves. You brought heartache and hardship upon yourselves. You were judged for your actions. But he reassured them of his faithfulness. This is who I am, he said to Israel. I am the never-changing God. I am present from eternity. I use my power and my grace for your life. Moses stated similarly in Psalm 90, the first two verses, he said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Do you see in the words of Moses here how he connects God's nature with the reassurance that God offers by his grace? So the fact that God is true that he is the only God, that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that he formed the universe. Those are not intimidating truths for the believer, but comforting facts that reassure us of God's power in our lives. If he's the God who created the galaxy that I'm in, if he's the God that orders and ordains the world that I live in that contains so many things beyond my control, certainly he will take care of me. There is a reassuring confidence and peace in knowing the true God. Yes, knowing that He is holy, that He is just, that He demands perfection. But also in knowing that He is faithful. He is always with us. He is in command of the affairs of the world. He is gracious and loving in His will toward us. One of the most tragic outcomes for a person's life is when they get to a point of despair that even the nature of God becomes for them a cynical thing, leading the person to despair and to doubt of even the person of God and what he has done for them. So therefore, in the midst of a fallen world with corrupted hearts, we continue to remind ourselves of who God is. We continue to trust him as our Redeemer from sin. And we build our hope and our future on His reassurance of the same. It takes a unique person to live and believe in this way. It takes a unique person to confess that you believe in a triune God. We are unique, not because of who we are, but because of who we have been made into by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has worked faith in our hearts. This faith that is built on the redemption of our Savior, Jesus, the perfect Son of God who fully accomplished His Father's plan of salvation. Simply put, our unique God makes us a unique people. Amen. Please rise. Please rise. Please rise.